Okay, the purpose of uh, this series, uh, Things That We Can't Live Without, is to explore some of the things that I believe that we cannot live without in, in light of uh, Super st Storm Sandy. Uh, I said last week that there are some things we don't want to live without. We, we would rather not live without. We would rather not live without electricity. We, we would rather not live without uh, hot showers and, and a warm house and, and the other conveniences that go along with, with, with that, the Internet and TV and all those things. But, but they, they really are comforts and pleasures and, and conveniences, but you can live without them. But what I said last week is that there are some things we can't live without, and I made my case in part one that we can't live without hope. Hope is so vitally important. Hope deferred, the Bible says, makes the heart sick. And I believe that we presented a case that, that hope is something that is, is absolutely necessary for life. Uh, God has provided, the Bible says, all things that, that pertain to both life and godliness, and one of those things is hope. So I want to add to the list this morning, uh, yet another uh, thing that I believe that we can't live without. But before we do that, I, I just want to ask one more time if we can just pray. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would give to us, grant to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, Jesus, that we would know what is the hope of His calling, the calling of Jesus, and to know what His his inheritance in us, in the saints is. So let's just pray. Father, one more time, we ask you to give us wisdom and revelation. The Holy Spirit, would you come, Holy Spirit, and, and give us understanding. Open up our eyes to see that, that those things that only you can, can illuminate and reveal to the heart. We remember flesh and blood has not revealed this unto us, but our Father who is in heaven. So I pray for that revelation this morning. Amen. Amen. If, if you do not receive an email from me during the week about the upcoming message and would like to, uh, one of the things I do is like on Wednesday, I send out a little uh, promo or a little blurb or a little uh, kind of uh, heads up on the direction in which we're going. For instance, this last Wednesday, this is what I sent out. I said, humanity left to itself is caught in an avalanche rushing toward destruction. And that humanity left to itself is caught in an avalanche rushing toward destruction, but God. Th th those two little words at the end of that statement, but God, but God. You know, avalanches are uh, ominous. Uh, they're, they're deadly, they're fatal. Uh, you know, if, if nothing is in the path of, a, uh, of an avalanche, then, then not much harm is done except maybe some broken trees and, and broken rocks and, and, and terrain, you know. But if life is in the path of, a, of an avalanche, great can be the loss of life. Great can be the destruction of that. When, when tons and tons of, of snow and ice and tree and rocks begin to uh, just fall out of control with such speed and force. You know, it, that's why I said it's, 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 it's ominous. I was thinking of showing a video this morning of what an avalanche looks like, but I think probably everybody knows what it looks like. But, 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 but what I, I found is a testimony of somebody who could say, I've been there and, and I've done that. 
So I thought that would be much more effective to give you a kind of a glimpse into what I'm talking about this morning. So here's, here's a blog that I found. It says February 19th, 2012. So that is a little less than uh, a year ago. The person writes, <clears throat> Jim, Chris, and Johnny were killed in an avalanche on the outer banks of Stevens Pass. It was a day that I was there, a participant in a tragedy worse than any nightmare that you could imagine. A group of us met mid-morning for a lap down Tunnel Creek, a 3,000 vertical foot backcountry run accessed from the resort that the locals ski regularly. I could say those guys skied the run literally hundreds of times, but obviously it's the backcountry and they don't do avalanche control work there so anything can happen. The avalanche hazard was considerable, but after discussing our options, we determined what we thought was a safe route down. Six people from our group skied to the slope first, or skied the slope first. I was waiting at the top with several others, watching as the seventh skier, Jim, dropped in. He was just cresting over a rollover out of sight when the snow began to rip. It triggered a crack in the mountain side that eventually spread 200 feet wide and 32 inches deep. The snow tumbled downhill, picking up speed. Jim was nowhere to be seen. The slide traveled 2,700 vertical feet down a steep, narrow channel filled with trees. The thundering wall of snow took out Jim plus three other skiers who were waiting about 1,000 feet down the pass. We did everything that we could to save them, but it wasn't enough. The incident left us all in shock, but we weren't the only ones who lost friends last winter. Around the world, avalanches devastate other mountain communities. I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of people have lost their lives in, in avalanches. But the avalanche that I want to talk to you about this morning is not of snow and rock and ice, but I want to talk to you about the avalanche of guilt and sin that man finds himself in. But God, let me read that statement again. Humanity left to itself caught in an avalanche rushing toward destru destruction, but God. You know, everything in this kind of an avalanche is inescapable in the path of death and destruction, eternal death and destruction, but God. But God, those two little words are so significant. But God in Christ Jesus stepped into the avalanche to be crushed and broken himself beneath the crushing rocks. Crushed by the massive weight of sin and guilt, he's risen from the dreadful burial. There to not only stop the avalanche, but to hurl it back and to change the very course and destiny of human history. God's plan to stop the avalanche of sin and death and guilt and condemnation is the cross. To conquer death by death. To remove sin by the endurance of the penalty of sin. To work mightily by suffering terribly. To glorify himself by shame and disgrace. The scaffold upon which Jesus Christ hung was the abyss of reproach and disgrace but becomes the revelation 
of God's amazing grace. Let's feel God all over me this morning. At the cross, God glorified himself, not with honor and splendor, but with weakness and with shame. The cross displays the love of God and the grace of God as in no other way possible for God to communicate through the great self-sacrifice of God himself. The triumph of grace is magnified and seen. Salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, is revealed. It's the grace that we cannot live without. This morning, if you think that my illustration of an avalanche may be a little bit over the top, maybe a little exaggerated, I want you to think with me for, for a few minutes this morning. It's, it's more than, I believe, symbolic or metaphoric. Beginning with, with, with one little act of rebellion, like a little snowball being rolled down a mountainside, that one little act of disobedience that began in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4 culminated in the, the first murder of a human being. And the Bible says that Abel's blood cried out from the ground because his brother Abel, in a, writ of, a, rage, a fit of rage, took his life. Just a couple of chapters later, Genesis chapter 6, this is the the commentary on the state of the world in just a few centuries, maybe 1,500 years after that event. Genesis 6.11 says, The earth was depraved and, and putrid in God's sight. That is not the earth, but the humanity that was in the earth. The land was filled with violence. The, the Amplified says vandalism, to help us understand what we're talking about, infraction, outrage, assault, and the lust of for power. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination and intention of all human thinking was only evil continually. The rolling and the, and the, and the momentum and the cascading of this avalanche continued. The Lord regretted that he had made man upon the earth and he was grieved at heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy and wipe away mankind whom I have created from the face of the ground. An avalanche of destruction was now inevitable. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The first time that the word grace is used in Scripture. To prevent the annihilation of the whole human race, God did not stop the avalanche from falling, but what God did was he introduced grace by plucking one family out of the avalanche. In a sense, that's exactly what God did for us at the cross. The avalanche of God's divine justice did not stop at the cross. It fell upon the cross. But just as those that were safe and sound in the ark, though the rains came and the wind beat against the ark, and the, and the great waters of the deep were, were, were broken up and, and it was thrown around. Nevertheless, those that were in the ark were safe, just as a type and shadow of those that are in Christ. The wrath of God fell upon the Son of God, but those that are in Christ are safe and sound. 
And just as Noah and his family walked out into a new world, so we walk into newness of life in Christ Jesus. It's all grace. There was nothing distinguishing about Noah and his family except that Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. And, and grace has the enablement and has the power. It is the activity of God that saves us. For by grace are you saved, and that not of yourself. And Jesus is the grace dispenser. Jesus is the one that, that John says is full of grace and, and full of truth. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I was telling my wife the other day, <clears throat> I've studied grace for years and years and years, and the more that I study it, each time I do, I see more of it. It's like, it's like, it's like an iceberg. You know, there's, there's much more that we don't see than we do see. There's, there, there's, there's much more depth of, or mass beneath the surface than, than, than I can articulate or that we can tell. And I believe it all in my heart that no human mind has, has plunged the depths of the, of the grace of God to understand it all or to explain it all or to articulate it all. But that's my job this morning is to try to talk to you a little bit about this amazing grace that we absolutely cannot live without. Maybe one of the best scriptural definitions, if you will, or explanations of what grace is and what grace does is found in Paul's writing to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. So it'll be up on the screen so that us to look at. Here is, here is the whole human race being plunged into this avalanche of, of eternal destruction, but God... But God, it says in verse 4, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Incredible. Not only do we receive what we did not deserve, what we ill deserve, but we, just, but we receive what is beyond our human imagination. No angel, no human could have ever imagined such grace and the kindness of God that in the ages to come, the ages to come, the endless eternity, he, God, might show the exceeding wealth or riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. There's something tangible that is going to be demonstrated beyond this life to each and every one of us who are in Christ. For by grace, you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that every single one of us are on all equal playing ground. The equal field upon which we play is that we, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That there is none righteous, no, not even one that all of us were caught up in the avalanche for destruction. But if grace finds a place in your heart and you find a place in God's heart, he will snatch you out of the cascading avalanche. One uh, theologian defined it like this. Grace is God's voluntary, unrestrained, unmerited favor toward guilty sinners granting them justification and life instead of the penalty of death, which they deserve. That's what we deserve. We deserve the penalty of death. But instead, 
We've been given justification just as if we had never sinned. We've been given life, and that is life eternal, not just the duration of life, but a quality of life. Packard expressed it this way. The grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners, contrary to the merit and indeed in defiance of their merit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. We had no, this is not an entitlement. Grace is not an entitlement. It's not something that we deserve. In fact, it's the very opposite of what we deserve. Grace only has a meaning when we understand the depravity of the human heart, when we understand how lost we really were. One of the reasons why grace, divine grace, is not appreciated today is because because we have made little of human depravity and have not understood just how lost the whole human race really is. What makes Paul's declaration about grace that we've just read is what really came before, and I don't have the time to go back to that except to say that Paul said what has happened to us is that we were dead in trespasses and in sins, that we were once living according to the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air controlled our lives, and we were defined as being children of disobedience, objects of wrath. See, it's not just that we were missing the kind of righteousness that God approves of. We were the objects of God's divine wrath. And as such, what did we deserve but divine wrath? But instead, what will we receive is divine mercy. Grace is more than unearned and undeserved. It's ill-deserved. It's the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve hell, but instead we've been destined to obtain mercy through Jesus Christ. The human race is not merely caught in Adam's one act of of, of transgression, but we ourselves joined in the rebellion and the treason against God. And we, and we, we loved our rebellion. We loved our independence. Our m- mantra was, nobody's going to tell me what to do. Even the creator can't tell me what to do. It's against this backdrop of being the enemies of God that divine grace is really displayed. It's not until we see ourselves once as having been at enmity with God, opposed to the Spirit of God, that we begin to appreciate the value, the magnificence of grace. Lewis Chafer said this, if God should discover the least degree of merit in the sinner, this in strict righteousness, he must recognize and duly acknowledge. But such a recognition of human merit, he would be discharging an obligation toward the sinner, and the discharge of obligation toward the sinner would would be payment or recognition or debt. And therefore, grace is not based upon merit because there was nothing meritorious about us. Is that the right word? Well, you know what I mean. (laughs) There was nothing of worth in us. There was nothing of value in us. But also, the opposite is also true. Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw grace because of human failure or human demerit. Grace only operates 
as grace, as Packard says, in defiance of human merit. There is nothing that I could do to violate the grace of God, nothing I can do to merit the grace of God. It's God's sovereign grace according to his own divine purpose and his sovereign will. Does God demonstrate his grace? I love this. The biblical response to receiving grace is more faith to receive more grace. I love it. The biblical response to grace received is is faith to receive more grace. Therefore, the Bible says, let's humble ourselves underneath the mighty hand of God that we may receive more grace. For God gives grace to the humble. Watergate was and always probably will be a mark in American history as a shameful period of uh, just, just, just scandal. Uh, two of the major players in the Watergate scandal, uh, members of the president's own uh, staff and administration were John... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up his pronunciation... Uh, I can't say it. Uh, His name is John. I just got a mental block. Enrichment? No, that's not it. Somebody help me with that. Airlifting. There it is. It just got stuck there just to show my weakness. Grace is magnified in weakness. All right. And Chuck... Watergate scandal led to the resignation of of President Nixon in disgrace. Both of these men uh, were the two men from the administration that were sent to federal to the federal prison. Chuck Coulson uh, was was called the Nixon's hatchet man. I don't know if you ever heard that or not, but he was special counsel to the president. And when uh, he was sent to prison. Uh, something happened to him, but God and Chuck found grace in the sight of the Lord. He turned his life over to Christ, led a devoted life to Jesus, developed a prison ministry called Prison Fellowship. He wrote more than 30 books talking about a Christian worldview because a transformation had taken place in his life. With Earl Lichtman, uh, just the very opposite took place. He was filled with resentment and bitterness, uh, filled with just just anger over everything that had happened. And for the next 20 years, every time he had the opportunity, he, he, he openly spoke disparagingly about Coulson. He wrote articles about Coulson to defame him. Less than a year before L. Lickman passed away, Chuck Colson learned about his illness and uh, visited him. The, this former domestic affairs administrator, right, this, this guy who had an office right above the Oval Office was now living in a nursing home, was dying from renal uh, failure. His third wife had left him. His children wanted nothing to do with him. Here he was in this nursing home dying and all alone, and Chuck Coulson hears about it and comes 
to not, to, not, to not merely tell him about grace, but to show him grace. And his concern and care and his, and his reaching toward this man on this one meeting had so impacted him that it began for, for Ehrlichman a journey to discover the God of grace. Several months later, he called him on the phone and, and said, the doctors have told me I don't have very long to live. Chuck Colson himself was sick at the time and sent a friend who led him to Christ. He entered undoubtedly the presence of God, having discovered what grace is all about, not in theory but in practice, and having freely received, Chuck Colson freely was able to give. I tell you what, it tells me that one of the best areas of harvest for us is not among our friends, but among our enemies. They're clearly able to see the grace of God that is operating in us when we freely dispense that love and forgiveness. This morning, we've looked at a couple of definitions of what grace is all about. We've looked at a scriptural interpretation of grace. We've looked at an example of grace. I want to ask you a question. What do you suppose is in Scripture, maybe the greatest example of somebody who has received grace. Who do you suppose that might be? I, I know for many of you, you probably would answer Saul of Tarsus. Th th this man who, who had persecuted the church, who dragged believers out of their homes, imprisoned them, compelled them to blaspheme, put some of them to death, and then and then met Christ on the road to Damascus and marvelously was saved. But you know, one of the things about this man, Saul of Tarsus, while he was religious, he was incredibly moral. In fact, he says of himself years later that as touching the law, he was actually blameless. He did what he did out of unbelief. So, so Paul is no doubt a great study in grace. But I think the quintessential example of what I'm talking about this morning, this unmerited, undeserved grace, this ill-deserved grace, that, that, that there's no way that we can pay God back for this kindness that he's expressed to us, has come from, from somebody who cursed Jesus, somebody who reviled Jesus along with another man who was crucified on his left and on his right. This one, this, this one thief with a reputation for being a, a, a convicted felon, a horrible human being. In a moment, it's unimaginable, he turns to Jesus after having cursed Jesus and said, said stuff like, if you really are the Messiah, if you really are the Son of God, save us and save yourself. If you are who you say you are, do something. And then, with other words, reviled and cursed Jesus. And then, and then out of his mouth, a little while later, after having heard maybe the prayer of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, maybe, maybe something penetrated into his heart that, that, that there's no way of explaining. He turns to Jesus now and says, Lord, which is a confession of his belief in the Lordship of Christ, Lord, remember me, believing also in an afterlife when you come into your kingdom, that you are the king of a kingdom. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That, those simple words 
were met immediately by Jesus. You know, when, when, when the others had spoken to Jesus, when the, the high priest made his, his taunts at Jesus, Jesus did not respond to them, but Jesus quickly responded to him. And this is what he said, today you shall be with me in paradise. How quickly Jesus was to respond to one as to pluck one out of the avalanche that was headed toward destruction. Grace is so amazing. Grace is so effective. It was grace that snatched another brand out of the fire. Here is, here is victorious grace. grace. Grace plans salvation. Grace, grace nurtures and, and carries salvation to completion. It's all of grace. Salvation is all of God. We, we don't contribute anything to our salvation. We are the recipients of grace. And it is the power of grace that saved us, and it's the power of grace that keeps us and ultimately brings us home. This man had marched alongside of Jesus. He saw Jesus fall, stumble underneath the weight of the cross. I want you to think about the obstacles that this man had to overcome to put his faith and his confidence and his trust in this bleeding, dying, crucified carpenter to take him as his Lord and as his God. In all probability, it was the first time that he ever laid his eyes on Jesus. He probably did not know about the miracles that were associated with the ministry of Jesus. He sees Jesus now at the moment of his optimum weakness and shame. The very fact of Messiah crucified, I've said before in the past, is an oxymoron. They don't go together. Messiah crucified does not go together. It is a stumbling block to the Jew, foolishness unto the Greeks. The crowd was obviously unanimously opposed to Jesus. There was no one in the crowd who pointed a finger at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. None of that. What is the explanation for this overcoming all of these obstacles that I've, that I've just mentioned? There is no explanation other than sovereign, amazing grace that, that could save a wretch like him or a wretch like you and me. There is no explanation except for sovereign grace. What I want you to know this morning is this, that every conversion is a miracle of grace. Every conversion is a miracle of grace, and grace is something we cannot live without. If you want to have eternal life, you must be the recipient of the grace that God freely offers. And here, what an example that if Jesus did not turn this man away, will he turn you away if you come to him? If Jesus didn't reject him, is there anyone who he would reject? And the answer is no. I, he, said, he said, no one who comes to me will I cast out. The Son of God stepped into the avalanche of human history, and he rescues those who ill deserve to be rescued on the basis of sovereign grace. He cried, Lord, remember me. So much for formulas and, and, and the right words to say. Lord, remember me. Remember me. 
in the hour of darkness. No, no, th th this was before the hours of darkness. This, this was before Jesus cried, it is finished in the triumphal. Th this is before the centurion said, said, truly this was the son of God. This was before the earth began to quake and the rocks began to rend and the veil in the temple was ripped into. This happened before all of that so that I believe God purposely did that to display the wonder of grace. He put grace on display for us so that we today could see just how awesome grace is and how he is able to save unto the uttermost everyone that comes unto God by him. Because listen, if he could save, if he could save someone in his dying, how much more can he save those of us now in his resurrected life who has triumphed over death and sin in the grave? Is he the one able to save him to the uttermost? But you know what I love maybe the most in all this, this story of this man as an example of grace? I love what Jesus didn't say. You see, the man said, Lord, remember me. In Jesus' response, he did not say, today you will be in paradise. Notice very carefully, Jesus did not say, today you will be in paradise. Today you will be in heaven. What he said was, today you will be with me in paradise. Because what I said last week is so true that Jesus Outside of heaven, heaven would never be heaven without Jesus. It is Jesus who is not only the source of grace, but he's the source of eternal joy and pleasures. It's at his right hand forevermore. See, we've been saved not just to be rescued from an avalanche of destruction, but we've been saved to become his glorious and holy bride, to sit with him upon his throne, to enjoy him forever. That's not what I deserve. It's not what you deserve, but it's what he offers. So that now we become, listen, not only grace receivers, but we become grace givers. So that we, like Chuck, Chuck Colson, can stand between the living and the dead and make a difference by plucking someone from the avalanche because we ourselves have been plucked from that avalanche and become grace givers. Because I tell you what, every conversion is a miracle of grace and grace is the thing that we cannot live without. And that grace is available to each and every person this morning. And for those of you that are mature in Christ, you need more grace. And listen, there, there, there's more, there, there's probably a month of sermons that we can share on the subject of grace. How that grace sufficient for us enables us to endure difficulties and hardship. How, how the grace of giving is something that God wants us to grow in so that we can demonstrate the sincerity of our love that just because Jesus was made poor for our sake that we through his poverty have been made rich that we likewise would become giving in the in the area of grace. And there is so much to it. Like I said, it's like an iceberg. There's more depth to it. There's more mass to it than we could see. But it's been, it's been given to us to know experientially this grace. 
I love what Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And if, and if you are anything this morning in Christ, it is only because of the, the ill-deserved, unmerited, unfavored, and even unasked for grace. I didn't ask for it. Grace found me just as it found Noah and, and saved him and the human race from annihilation. So grace is looking for you this morning. And grace has a face, and that face is the Son of God. So I'm going to ask you this this morning before we pray. Can you say, can you say like Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? Can you say that? If you can this morning, then you know how sweet the sound of grace is and how appropriate that line from that song really is. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would search the house for anyone who is in need of grace this morning, anyone who is in need of being plucked out of the avalanche that is leading toward destruction, you and you alone, grace and grace alone, Christ and Christ alone is the answer. The cross applied to the heart in faith, that is the answer. It's not the magical words that we say, but it's the embrace, just as that thief laid hold of Christ and would not let go. So I pray this morning that men and women in this place who are in need of grace would lay hold of Jesus through faith this morning. For by grace, we've been saved. Through faith. Faith is the instrument. Faith is the instrumentality. That not of ourselves, but it's the gift of God. Receive this morning the gift of God. Everyone and anyone this morning, if you will come to Jesus, he will not cast you aside he will save you he will keep you and he will bring you home that's what grace does and that's what grace is let's all stand and worship him this morning